don't spend a lot of time on this, but we're just going to talk about this every week just to keep you guys in mind of where we're going. We need to remember this stuff so we can understand kind of the mindset because as we've talked about, there's a million different interpretations about the book of Revelation and truly about the Bible as a whole. Depending on how you were brought up, what church you may have grown up in, different things like that have different views of that. And just because people have different views does not make them bad people. The truth of it is, is that a lot of times we get, um, we, we, we read our Bible through what I call filters is what I say. We allow our life experiences and things like that to really help us interpret what Scripture says. And instead of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, which is this word down here at the bottom that is hermeneutics. So you've got the amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial view. This all means no millennium. In other words, it's all allegory. It's, there's no literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Post-millennial is that Jesus, is, it's, it's when he was here the first time after 70 AD, that is when the whole millennium idea started, but it's not a literal thousand years, and when he returns, it's the end of it. Pre-millennial, which is where we would stand, is that Jesus, when he comes back, he is going to reign on the earth for a literal 1,000 years. And so without getting into all the details of all this other stuff, when you, out of this shoots down to this, where you get into the idea of the rapture, the harpazo. You may have noticed that the word rapture is nowhere in your Bible. That is not an incorrect statement. There's a lot of things that we use that aren't in your Bible, but the word harpazo, which means the taken up, is in there. You see it in Thessalonians and other places. You've got your pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. You're going to have a seven-year tribulation. You see that in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, with Daniel's 70 weeks. You've got the 68th week plus one, which is where we're at. And then before that ends, there's going to be this seven-year time of terror, if you will, before Jesus actually returns. The question is, is the church on the earth, is it taken away before that happens, in the middle of it happening, or after it happens? Great debate, scholars on both sides of it, all very intelligent people. The biggest thing here is, is your interpretation of Scripture. If you look at it more allegorical, you tend to fall on this side of the camp. If you look at the Bible more literally, you fall on this side of the camp. And one of the things I've said before is that what she believes between the church and Israel, did the church replace Israel, or does Israel have its own distinction, its own calling of God, its own plan? Um, where you see that is typically will tell me where you're going to fall in this. Because if some reason you think that the church has replaced Israel, then you're going to typically fall this direction. If you believe that Israel is its own distinct character has different origins and destinies, you tend to fall this side. And so it just depends on where you fall. We're not saying you're trying to sell an idea. I will tell you that the amillennial view and the postmillennial view really does not line up hermeneutically with Scripture. You cannot properly and exegetically speak that way because there's just too many holes in that idea. This stuff, you can make a good case any way you go. But the premillennial view, because you've got to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So, we are going to get into chapter 2. We're going to talk about the first church. The first seven verses is all we're going to get through tonight. We're not going to rush these things because each church is very important. And so if you remember last time, when we got through, we got through all of chapter 1. Remember, John is on the island of Patmos. He was put there by a guy named Domitian. Not a good dude. He was put there because he was a, a uh, political assassin, I guess, for lack of a better term. He was a prisoner. So he's put there on the island. Jesus shows up, gives him a vision, tells him to write the things that are, the things that, the things that were, the things that are, and the things that will be. The things that were were the stuff that he saw. They saw the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man with the seven lampstands, the seven stars in his hand, and all that other stuff. Now we're getting into the things that are. 
the R of the next two chapters, chapter 2 and 3. These churches are not allegorical churches. These were literal churches. Back in the late 1800s, there's a guy named, a name I can't think of right now, who, uh, archaeologically speaking, he went out there and dug all these things up and said, hey, look, it, it seems to line up perfectly with what we see in Scripture. Who would have guessed that? So there's a lot of things that are going on here. But there's when we get into this, and one of the questions I keep asking you, and we've not answered yet, but I'm going to show you some different things here, is why these seven? Why did Jesus say, write a letter to these seven churches? There were hundreds of churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, hundreds of them. There was more important churches, Antioch, Rome, the Church of Jerusalem. I mean, you could go through the list, and there were a lot more important churches than these. So why did he choose these sevens? And this is something that we have to kind of keep in the back of our minds. And so there are four levels of application when we look at these each of these letters to these churches. Okay, The first one is local. Remember when I talked to you guys when we went through the book of Acts, when we first got started, and I said, when you look at proper hermeneutics, you, hermeneutics is, is just a big fancy word of how we interpret Scripture. It's also, in, in fact, you should just say writing, not even Scripture. It's used in um, colleges and things like that. When they look through it, it's how we interpret these things. But the bottom line is when we're talking about this is written to a certain people at a certain time. So when some of this stuff applies very locally, specific to them, not to us. Okay, but that doesn't mean that there's not more to it than that. Because the next thing is, is as you're going to see, it says, let these things be written to the churches. In other words, each church had its own letter, but they were expected to read and to hear what was written to all the churches. So it wasn't just exclusionary in that point. The third one is kind of a homiletical view, which is a fancy word, is that what kind of personal application can I take from this? Because, you know, and you can look at that from many scripture. In fact, Isaac and I were talking about that later, earlier today. Earlier today, because he asked me, he said, you know, there's a verse in the Bible that says God will never leave us or forsake us, right? We've all heard it. We've all said it. But the thing is, is what we don't realize is Jesus never said it. It's actually in the Old Testament. I think it was Jeremiah. I can't remember exactly. Or, whatever, or Joshua, not Jeremiah. Joshua. So he said, no, that was obviously written to the nation of Israel and to Joshua specifically. So why do we say those things about us today. Well, while it's true contextually that doesn't apply to us, the principle behind it homiletically certainly lines up with the rest of Scripture. So making that statement is not an error. Perhaps using that verse to make that statement would be, because we know God never leaves us for sickness. One of the things we said, he's omnipresent. So whether we want to get away from him or not, we can't, because everything. So that's just it. So there's a personal application. But the fourth one is what I want to show you guys here in a minute, is this prophetic side of it. Now, this is a theory. It's a historic prophetic theory is what it's called. And this is not without controversy. But what the theory is, is that each of these seven churches represents a passage in time of a church age. Okay, let me show you this. Now, these dates are not agreed upon by everybody. But we would be, we're going to start with the Church of Ephesus tonight which puts us in this apostolic age, and that ran up to from 30 AD, after Jesus was gone and the apostles get doing their thing, to just about the time we're in, because the writing of this is approximately 96 AD. John's an old man, but to 100 AD. Smyrna would represent a time of Roman persecution to the church, 100 AD to 313 AD. Pergamum is the church of Constantine, and we know a lot about that. 
the 313 A.D. to 600 A.D. Thyatira would represent the Dark Ages from 600 to 1517 A.D. It's the biggest span of time. Sardis is the time of the Reformation. In the 95 Theses, you guys know what I'm talking about, that kind of stuff. 1517 to 1648. The Church of Philadelphia is this great missionary movement. You see, you see things like uh, the Great Awakening of the First and the Second and things like that going on. You have that from 1648 to 1900. And of course, the Laodicean Age, the Church of Apostasy, was approximately 1900 to today and will continue until Jesus returns. Now, that's the theory, guys. And I'm going to leave this up here for a minute because I know some of you guys are writing this down. Not everybody agrees with these time frames. They, they might add a few years, maybe start it a little later. But the bottom line is that this is popular amongst your average believer. It is unpopular among your more academic people. And the reason for that is what I showed you guys before about these were local churches. And the, 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 uh, the argument against it, one of the arguments against it, is the fact that it has to be make sense to the people that it was written to. And there is no way they would have ever come up with this. Okay? Now, that is an okay argument, but it's not a great argument because the Bible transcends time. There are going to be things that apply to us that they would have never have seen coming. As a matter of fact, those of you that are using your iPad, they never would have thought that that was possible. In fact, electricity would have been pretty nice for them. So, I mean, there's, there's things like this. Now, I'll give you an example. I had a professor at, at Raymond where I went to Bible college, and he was teaching on Revelation. He wrote two books. It's called Breaking the Bread of Revelation 1 and 2. And he was pretty proud of this. This was required reading uh, for, for our class. And he hated this. He thought this was complete and utter nonsense. And here was his argument against it. He said, if this is true, that puts us in the Laodicean age, which means we're in the time of apostasy. And his argument was, do you really want to be living in the time of apostasy? Now you tell me, is that a good argument or not? No. Because whether you want to be or not, it's irrelevant to whether this is true. That doesn't make it true or untrue. But that was the dumbest argument I ever... The books were horrible. I was telling Isaac earlier, I used to have those on my bookshelf, and every time somebody would come in, they see something about Revelation, they'd say, can I borrow those? No, you can't. I've got lots of good books. That's not some of them. In fact, I think I threw them away. I don't know. The guy was a great guy, but that was complete nonsense. So just because you don't want something to be true certainly does not make it untrue. Did everybody kind of get those written down? Do I need to leave those up for a second? Any questions about any of those? I see Amy still writing. I'll wait for you. Oh, you're good. Okay. So as we get into these letters, you're going to notice that there are seven design elements here. Did I put this in your thing? Let me see here. Yes, I did. On the seven, the sevens of Revelation thing that I put out for you guys, if anybody doesn't have one, I have some extras up here, or if you lost it, one of the things is I put seven features, and this is what I'm talking about, okay? I think that's what I'm talking about. Now, I don't remember when I put that together. But in every one of these, you're going to see the first thing is the name of the church. That's the first thing it's going to put. Then... And you're going to see a title of Christ, and they're not going to necessarily be the same one. He chooses one. The one he uses today comes right out of Revelation 1. Then he's going to give him a commendation. And this is true pretty much across the board. Here are the things that you're doing well. Then he's going to give them a concern. In other words, here's where you're screwing up. Then an exhortation, a, you know, hey, you can do better, you got this, go team. Then you've got a promise to the overcomer, and you'll see that as we go through this. And then the last thing, kind of this admonition. And so what I would encourage you to do is write those down, and as we go through each letter, 
write down the verses that kind of correspond with these, and I'll try to help you with that to give you an idea. So here's what I want to do, and I don't normally do this, but uh, ironically, as uh, these books showed up here, I was going through and looking for stuff for the church, and one of the things was a DVD of these, it said the seven churches. It intrigued me. And as you guys know, I like to give you a lot of the historical information. I tried to put some pictures up so you can see that. And I could have done that. However, they did a nice video showing us and talking about some of the history. So I'm actually going to show that here uh, tonight because I think it will help us going forward as we get into this so you guys can understand. But before we do that, I do want to read it all of verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. Is that all right with you guys? Don't say no. Okay. Pull this up. Just so you have it in your mind. Chapter 2, book of Revelation, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. So you see here, you've already got the name of the church, right? These things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from his place unless you repent. But have this you have, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So keep that kind of in the back of your mind as we watch this. This is about 20 minutes-ish. So if you want more coffee or more dessert, please help yourself. On this day of discovery, author... That's pretty much the end of it, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop it there. Now, do you guys like that? Does that help give you an idea versus me just showing you pictures? Because they've got one for each one, and I'll show it each week if that helps you guys out. It always helps me. I'm very visual, so... Okay, well, let's go through this, and, and, and let's start it in verse 1. Now, this is where you're going to see the name of the church and the title. Okay, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. If you were here last week or you weren't here last week, we talked about this word angel. In the previous chapter, it talks about the angels, how the uh, lampstands were the church in verse 20, but the stars that were in his hand were the angels. And I said that that word angels is the Greek word angelos, which literally means messengers. And I gave you a whole bunch of verses where it is translated as a human messenger. And my point being is that this is not an angel like we think. This is a messenger. How do we know that? Because the letter is being written to the angel of the church of Ephesus. God does not need John to get a message to his angels. God can do that on his own. He's using John to get the messenger. My argument here is that this is very likely the pastors, or at least the overseers of the church, the elders, however it was structured at that time, whoever was in charge, that's who that was. Okay? So, Ephesus means desired one, or darling, or something like that. Every one of these churches has a name. But here you see the title of Christ. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. That was easy to figure out because we just read it, the previous chapter. It's a title that Jesus chooses for himself. 
But he's showing a couple of things here in this that holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And we actually used the words earlier, but his omnipotence and his omnipresence. His omnipotence is his all-knowing because he knows what's going on with this church. He knows everything that's happening. But his omnipresence, that he is still there with me. With them, I should say, not with me. And there's a lot of analogies used that's pointing back to these different things that are going on in this church. Now, you just saw a lot of the history and the things of Domitian. You know, remember, when it talks about those seven stars in his right hand, this is Domitian's son. This was struck in about 84 to 86 AD. I can't remember exactly when it was. His son unexpectedly died. He said that he came from Jupiter, which was Zeus, which was next to Artemis, the biggest male god, and you saw the temple of Artemis. Now, John lived just outside of Ephesus, and his, the hill he lived on overlooked that temple. So he would see that every single day. But this is his son sitting on top of the world, the son of God in control of things, and you have seven stars. Jesus is speaking specifically to that. You see that at other times through Scripture where Jesus spits in the face. We talked about a perfect example are the ten plagues in the Exodus. The ten plagues went against the ten gods of the Egyptians. It was very specific. These were not random occurrences. These were things that proved that there is one God. And I think that's the exact same thing that Jesus is saying here. That, hey, this is what they're claiming because these people in Ephesus would have known that. You and I, not so much. We don't go around and look at coins that were minted in 84 AD. We don't care. Well, unless we have one, it's probably worth a lot of money. So then we would care. Okay, let's get into verse 2. It says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. He's showing how intimately he knows them. He's in the midst of these churches. That word midst literally means middle. He is there in the middle of this. He said he knows their works, their labor, their patience. They cannot bear those who are evil. He says basically that they have clung to sound doctrine, and they have dug out all the heresy in the church. Now think back to Acts 17, 11. We use this verse a lot. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind. I still got to fix that. And search the scriptures daily whether those things were so. It's mine, it's not mine. Okay, they're not mining for coal or something. But, I mean, and that's what they've done. That there were people that were coming in. This is a very pagan area. It's got many, many gods, nonetheless, Domitian himself. And so they were coming in and they're teaching. It talks about the Nicolaitans. And we'll talk about that in depth in a little bit. But look at this. Now, how many commendations do you think that Jesus just gave? If you had to pick a number and guess quickly, how many do you think are right there? Come on, think Revelation. How many numbers? Think of a number that's in very <laughs> seven. I know your works, your labor, patience. You cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and labored for my name's sake. Seven. Again, if that's a coincidence, Lord help us. That's incredible. Right? I just don't believe in coincidence. This, the seven thing happens way too often. If you dig through scripture you and you really get into this hardcore I mean, you count the types of expression, you count the commas, you count the, I mean, all of that stuff. You could really uh, go on a tangent with this thing. Now, remember we're talking about Ephesus, and that's the key. What about this church is Ephesus? What is going on? What were they told to do? Things like that. So we've got to go back. Let's go to Acts chapter 20. I've got it up here. You can put it there if you'd like. 
But remember, Paul set this church up. And this is the time where he's leaving the area of Galatia. He collected all the offerings. Essentially, he's going to take them back to Jerusalem. Okay? He's going there because the church in Jerusalem is hurt. And it was a sign. He said, hey, look, these, these Gentile churches are sending money back to the Jewish church, essentially. So verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, he's flying, so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus. Miletus is where they landed. Ephesus had an incredible port, but it was man-made. Not that that's relevant here, but later on it is, and we'll talk about that. But the bottom line is, is Ephesus was the better port than the one in Miletus, but it's time sake. So he sent to them in Ephesus, and he called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that the chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed now... And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching to the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Now here's where we're going. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Remember, he's talking to the elders of this church, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone, night and day, with tears. He warns them, right? What did he say is going to happen? People are going to come in here with heretical doctrine. They're going to come in and they're going to try to lead your, your disciples away. They're going to try to get, what is Jesus commending them for? They didn't fall for it. John sends them warning. Remember, John was set up in Ephesus. Most people believe that 1 John is written to the church of Ephesus because this is the area that he was in. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, which is a good thing to do, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world by this you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So John is telling them, listen, you need to test these things that are coming into your church. These are bad things. Then we get into 2 John. Now, again, I've told you this before, this is controversial, but a lot of people believe that 2 John is written to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Smart people on both sides of the aisle, if it is written to her, she lived in the house that John lived in, which was in Ephesus, okay? But that's why I'm pointing this out. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not love those things which we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. 
Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not, does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Again, you see warnings, right? If this is specifically to the church of Ephesus, even if it's not, it's applicable to the church of Ephesus. There are going to be false teachers that are coming in, and they are going to try to lead yourself astray. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that in 64 AD, Paul leaves a young man named Timothy to be the overseer of the church of Ephesus. And he gives him some interesting warnings, okay? He says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. That's 1 Timothy 1. Again, what is he saying? There's going to be stuff coming. Look at verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith in a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenius, or Hymenius and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So he not only he talked about the shipwreck, and again, we're in Ephesus, major port, man-made port. Okay? Shipwreck was a common thing for them. They, they would understand what this meant. But he names two people specifically that have done exactly what he was saying. And what's he do? He delivered them over to Satan. What's 1 Corinthians tells us? He delivers them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh that they might repent. That's what they're looking for. Again, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius, same guy we saw a little bit ago, and Philetius, new characters, are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying to the that the resurrection is already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. Now that resurrection thing is that um, it was a passing in the Greek mind, the resurrection of the dead, in other words, we would call like the rapture and the return of Christ, was un they couldn't fathom it. It didn't exist. But again, we see the same name, but we're talking about the guy that's in charge of Ephesus. Let me show you one more. And guys, there are more than what I'm just showing you. I'm just giving you the biggies, or some of the biggies. 2 Timothy 4, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Did you catch a theme in all of these different verses? What is the bottom line of these warnings? It's that you need to rightly divide the word of truth. You need to test the word that's being spoken and test the spirit. And if someone brings false doctrine, you get rid of those. You, what we would call excommunicate. Because they are going to cause damage in the church. And so he wants those guys. That is the warnings. Now look at this. Let's look at verse 2 and 3 again. 
Because he said, I know your works, your labor pain cannot bear those who are evil, and tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So, did they do a good job? Absolutely. There are so many warnings. You need to read the book of Ephesians. You need to read uh, more than just that. I mean, there's just so much in there about Ephesus. This was the biggest church in Asia Minor. We talk about why these seven churches. Did you notice, and I should have put a map up, and I didn't, that they're kind of in a circular pattern? There's a major highway that follows that. It would be easy to distribute them, which is one of the reasons that they think that it's probably that they did this. But the bottom line is, is Jesus telling them, you had ample warnings from Paul, from John, as well as others. And guess what, guys? You did a great job. You got it right. So these warnings are good. Now let's look at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. What is this? They've left their first love. Now, that word first there is the Greek word protos. It means first in rank, influence, honor, the chief. Something that, you know, along those lines. It's not just first and order. I mean, it is the absolute first. So what was their first love? Well, the one thing they've got down is sound doctrine, right? But the thing they're missing is the love aspect. Sound doctrine and perseverance are inadequate without love. Essentially, they are too busy for the business of the king to have time for the king. Kind of the analogy that he used about his wife, that I'm committed to the uh, institution of marriage, therefore I did the dishes, Right? That's the concept. Imagine, if you will, a church or a person, a people, who are so hung up on getting doctrine just perfect and just right that they have no relationship with God. And that's, that is essentially what he's saying. There are two words I'm going to write down here, the words that you're probably familiar with, at least the first one. Not that you can read my handwriting. Orthodox, right? Well, you hear about the Orthodox church, the Orthodox believing. That just simply means correct doctrine, right doctrine, which is what he's saying. You guys have done those things. Your doctrine is sound. You've chased off all the bad guys, the guys that are bringing false doctrine into the church. You're not allowing them to stick around. But that's just one part of the equation. Here's a word that you may not have heard. Orthopraxy, P-R-A-X-Y. That means correct practice. That doesn't mean you get your rituals correct. That the doctrine that is correct, your application of that in your life has to be correct as well. Now you know people like this. In fact, um, I dealt with a church that was full of people like this before. Uh, it's actually up in Lincoln. They're very, they know the word. But when you come down to a relationship with God, they're cold. I would call these folks heresy hunters. You see them on Facebook all the time. Everything is, a, like, everybody's a false prophet. That's all they talk about. They can't, if you're wrong on one thing, they throw you out. You're a complete false prophet. It's a very mechanical practice, but there is absolutely no passion behind it. They look at a charismatic church and think they're a bunch of demon worshipers or something. They're just something too wrong. Because the charismatic church is way too enthusiastic to be God and to be involved with God. Because you know, you have to enter solemnly and quietly, head down. You don't look around. You just get to your pew. You sit down there for the 45 minutes part of the service. You stand up twice. You repeat the liturgy. And then you go home. And in most cases, crack open a beer when you get there. I mean, and that's what it is. These guys are out there. And that is what the church of Ephesus is becoming because they've lost their first love. They've lost that 
passion and relationship that they had about Jesus. So it was all about being mechanical. We have to be right. So they were getting that part of right. But there's two parts to that. And they lost the relational side of that. And that is what he's getting on them. Let's go to verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstands from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we'll talk about that part here in a minute. But remember, they need to go back from where they came from. They need to repent. They need to get back to the devotion side of the kingdom. You know, and I told you guys this before. One of the struggles that I have, I was telling the prayer team last night when we were here praying, is that I study for hours every week, preparing the messages, getting stuff like this together. Hours. My weakest part is my prayer time. Because I get so caught up in getting this stuff done and putting the pieces together to make sure the complicated things are understandable and things like that, that I, I miss out. And, then, and the Lord convicts me on it. You know, that's why I love the Tuesday night thing. When I can get here, I'm here because it's good and I need that. You know, it's a set aside time for one hour that we're just going to pray. And so it's great. But that's what he's telling them. Now, what is the consequence of that if they don't? What happens if they don't repent? He says, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. Right? There's a consequence. I'm going to take you out, essentially is what he's saying. Now, you can look at this in a couple of different ways. The one thing you'll notice about the church of Ephesus is it no longer exists. It lasts until about the 300s. And if you know anything about God, he's extremely patient. Because how many, and we just talked about this Sunday with, with, with I mean, we're going back in time here a little bit, but dealing with Esther, but the time that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt, and then finally when Saul's the king several hundred years later, it's time to bring judgment on them for what they did, because God is extremely patient. So it's not impossible that he was very patient with this church to get things right. I'm sure that he was. But they're no longer there. Now that's like, well, yeah, of course not, because that was thousands of years ago. There are a lot of churches that were around at that time that are still around today. So it's not impossible. So their lampstand has been removed in that regard. It could mean something as simple as that. They were the biggest church and the most influential church here in the Asia Minor area because of Ephesus being the center of everything it was, especially Domitian worship and Artemis worship. So their place of influence could have been removed. And whether the church still exists, however you want to look at it, either one of them works the same. One thing I'll say on the lampstand, we always picture the candelabra, right? The thing from Hanukkah. It may be that, but this is really referring to a single lampstand with a single thing filled with oil, things like that. So it might have been, there would be seven individual candelabras, not one with seven arms for the seven churches, if, if that's how it was. We don't know. John didn't draw us a picture. He probably should have. That was a joke, guys. Stick with me. Okay, don't cry. Anyway. Okay, let's talk about this Nicolaitis thing. The truth is, is nobody knows for sure what that was. I'm going to tell you what some of their theories are. The first one is a first century sect claiming apostolic authority. The second people saying that we have the authority of the apostles what not, and they don't. The second one, and this is possible, that is it's an untranslated word, more of a transliteration, which just means they, they wrote it down how it sounds, is all that means. That's usually how the name, the word hallelujah is actually a Hebrew word, and we just, we wrote it down how it sounds, okay? We didn't translate that, that's transliterated. But it comes from the Greek word nikeo, which means conquer or rule, and leos means laity or people. So in other words, if these people were using their stature to rule over 
the other people. The third theory here is that Nicholas, who is one of the seven chosen deacons in Acts chapter 6, went off the rails a little bit and had this, this whole nonsense set. And it's possible because some of the early church fathers, Hippolytus and Irenaeus, both said that the Nicolaitans, that's who they were. They came from this guy, Nicholas, that's from Acts chapter 6. He's one of the uh, seven deacons that were chosen. Now, other early writers claim that it was the first one. It was the sect, and that's what that guy said. It was the sect of people who had these false doctrines and whatnot. Uh, a fourth theory is that the Nicolaitans taught to some degree of participation and the different practices that were going on in the culture of Ephesus that it was permissible. Kind of the idea of that your flesh is your flesh and your spirit is your spirit, so do what you want with your body because it doesn't affect your spirit type of thing. That kind of thing. One and four kind of go together. Uh, those are just some of the different things. But other than that, there's not a lot of writings about them. I mean, they don't know for sure exactly what it was. All we know is that the Ephesian church certainly would have. So they know. And I just realized I did not put verse 7 up on the board. So Look at your Bible. I apologize for that. I, I do that to Evan frequently on Sunday mornings. I finally did it to myself. I got even with myself, Evan. Look at that. It says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the church is, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, here's a question. He who has an ear, let him hear. Who does that speaking to? Yeah, everybody, right? I mean, unless you lost your ears in the war or something. I mean, but even then you had them, so you, you count. That's everybody. So this is an admonitory phrase. And actually, this is used in the Gospels by Jesus when he's on the earth. Want to take a guess how many times it's used in the Gospels? Anybody? Seven. What a coincidence. Who would have guessed that? Now, this also has allusions back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It's got... The, it's not the exact wording, but the same concepts there. He who has not here, let him hear. And the key is what the Spirit says to the church, the Spirit of God. Okay? Then you get to the tree of life part. Whoever overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. Now, what is the tree of life? Where do we see the tree of life in Scripture? You see it in Genesis, whoever said that. And you also see it at the end, right? It's bookended, correct? Now, this is pointing back. Remember, Genesis is paradise lost, Revelation paradise regained, everything in between is everything in between. It's the process in which God used to get there. So this is pointing back to the garden because it says, in the midst of the paradise of God. It's giving the idea that they can understand the past better than they can the future because it's a time in which God strolled with mankind, was there with them and everything like that. They were in perfect peace and harmony. The Septuagint uses the word for paradise, uses Eden. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It was the one that the apostles all used, the one that Jesus used. Um, there were 70 translators, which is where you get the Septa and the Septuagint, okay? So this is the symbolism of the life-giving fellowship with God. So these are all these different things that are going on. But to him who overcomes, I will give. Now you notice that it says, the Spirit says to the churches, not to the church, so this tells us that it was intended for all the churches to read that. And without fail, a writing from an apostle is going to go out beside these seven individual churches. We know that Paul read the book of Luke because he actually quotes from the book of Luke in there. He quotes a verse out of Deuteronomy and he quotes a verse out of Luke and that's the only place that verse is found. 
So we know these readings, this New Testament stuff, was widely accepted. So anyway, I apologize for not getting that last verse here, but let me show you one more thing. And we talk about this apostolic age. So I said it was in the 30 AD. I'm going to show you this thing, because I want to show you one last thing. Now this year, you see the dates are a little different than the ones I gave you earlier. It's just 33 to 100. But I didn't want to have to make one of these, and this one was really nice. So I'm going with this, okay? So if the dates don't match, that's okay. If you would like, if those of you on Facebook, I can put that up on Facebook. That way you can just steal the picture, or I can email it to you, whatever you want. Um, but we're in this time frame, okay? So you've got the death of Christ, and you've got all these persecutions that are going on. Now... It's the end of the century. The church is going to end up going through a lot of changes and going to face a ton of persecution. And Paul warns the Galatian church. It says that don't perfect in the flesh what was begun in the spirit. And you're going to begin to see those things laid out. Now, Acts, you, the, the, we do not follow the roadmap of the early church or really any church on how we do things. We should follow scripture, right? And there are four things in the book of Acts that lays out how we should do church. The first one is focus on the teaching of the word, which the church of Ephesus got right, which is what Paul was telling Timothy, teach the word, all of that. What was the first challenge against the word of God in the Bible? It was Satan, Genesis 3. Did God really say? He was challenging the word of God. They use, so you use scripture to authenticate your experience. You see that time and time again. The second thing was a commitment to assembly and fellowship. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the practice of some. That was Paul. They come together constantly. In fact, on a daily basis in the early church, they come together, they would fellowship, they would pray, they would share a meal, which is the third thing. There was this breaking of bread. That's twofold. One, they would share a meal together. They were doing life together. The second would be what we would call communion. They were doing that daily a lot of times, okay? And then the fourth one, and this is an important one, and this is what often gets left out, is a commitment to prayer. Those are the four things. Now, you'll notice how a lot of this, for those of you guys that kind of had to sit through some of the leadership stuff we did a couple weeks ago on a Sunday night, um, you'll notice how a lot of these things line up with where we're going and how we're doing it. That funnel that I showed you and all of that, because I fully believe that Acts gives us the perfect roadmap to follow, and therefore the Spirit will add to their number daily not upon us and how gimmicky we can be. But there's one other thing that I want to show you here, and I didn't point this out, and for time's sake, we're not going to go through all this, but go home and read it. What's interesting is how these seven churches happen to line up with the parables in Matthew 13. Want to guess how many parables there are? What a coincidence. And so if you go through this and you begin to compare these, you're going to pick up a lot of similarities. Now, I know that's purely coincidence. I mean, it's, it's just the way it worked out, you know. Go God, but it's very interesting. But you're gonna to have to do that on your own time, and we'd be here for another hour. And did you say Matthew? Oh, Matthew. Matthew. Are you yep. going to put the link to this, or are you gonna put this on Facebook? I will put that on Facebook. Oh, is there a link to it? Uh, I don't know. I stole it. I right clicked and saved it, so there could be a link. <laughs> so I'll let you. I'll do both. How about that? I'll that I'll look through it. Oh, look at this guy. He's on top. This is our tech guy. Are you surprised by that? Evan, do you have verse 7 on a slide that you can throw? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. And I can print these for you, too, if you want to take them home. Anybody, you guys want that? I'll print them here in a minute, and you can leave it with it. You can leave with it. Okay. I should have done. Shame on me. I apologize. So anyway, but check those out, okay? Again, you'll notice that the ages are a little different. The Laodicean age is 1925. I said early 1900s. 
We don't really care. It really is irrelevant. But as we get going, as, as I said before, these things are they're very powerful. Because if these churches were in any other order, that does not work. It doesn't work with the age theory, and it does not line up with this very well at all. Doesn't make it necessarily true, but it is definitely intriguing, if nonetheless. Um, but when you get there, are also some things like even the Dark Ages. When we get there, I'm going to show you a five-minute video on some of the amazing things that took place in what we call the Dark Ages um, that were incredible advancements. So we'll see some of that, and I'll explain that when we get there. Any questions about anything from tonight? I know we're a little bit long. I wanted to show that video. We do like the video. We want the video. Okay, I'll do that. Any other questions? Dedications, requests. Okay, be sure to tip your waitress. <laughs>